welcome to talc teaching and learning consultation skills this is the talc talks podcast helping everyone who sees patients to improve their consultation skills to get better outcomes and this approach can even increase your job satisfaction Julian, would you like to introduce yourself and say something about your role? Hi, Avril. I'm Julian Tompkinson. I'm a GP and trainer in Bolton, and I'm also a primary care medical educator in South and Central Manchester. Thank you. This podcast forms part of the module which is called TALC Advanced Skills for Effective Explanations and Planning of Personalised Care. This chapter builds on the basic skills of making shared management plans, which take account of the patient's own ideas, concerns and hopes. The chapter we're discussing now is called To Be or Not To Be? How can clinicians share decision making in complex situations? Being able to make and share an effective management plan with a patient is a core consultation skill. It takes the patient's perspective into account. And in most circumstances, this is a reasonable approach that means the plan proposed works for both the clinician and the patient. At times, though, decisions are complicated taken in situations of uncertainty, or sometimes there's not a single best answer as to what should happen next. Rather higher order skills are needed here, and there's a formal skill set referred to as shared decision making, sometimes abbreviated to SDM, that is really useful in this situation. Julian, could I ask you to start us off by telling us something about the kinds of difficult situations where a formal shared decision making approach could be helpful? Yes, I mean, sometimes it's, it's quite straightforward. Decision-making can be quite easy, but it can become harder when certain factors come into play. So I'll maybe run through some of the, the different scenarios that make this more complicated. So the first one, the patient doesn't really accept what the clinician's recommended approach is. So, for instance, it's quite topical at the moment. The clinician recommends hospital admission for urgent treatment, but the patient's really fearful of, of going to the hospital. And that then makes the decision making, which if the patient was really happy to go to the hospital, there wouldn't be it wouldn't be an issue. But obviously, that makes that much more complicated. Needs mm-hmm. exploring. Another um, situation may be whether there are several options of of roughly equivalent predicted effects, or I suppose significant pros and cons. That that can also be termed as equipoise. And so then the decision is is. It's complicated because it's it's hard for the clinician and the and the patient then to, to work out if one thing's going to be beneficial, but then there's a there's a serious uh, adverse effect. Another complicated um, scenario could be where the plan really interferes and significantly interferes with the elements of 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 life which are really valued by the patient. So I suppose this could be a, a high level where a, a patient's recommended to have a blood transfusion or a termination and and those concepts are, are you know, are, are totally unacceptable to their to their beliefs. But it could also be on a slightly lower level where patients maybe really value avoiding medications, or they've always they saw what antidepressants did to their mum, and they vowed they'd never go on antidepressants, even though but the doctor or the clinician may be highly recommending these. There can be all sorts of reasons why why people might not want to to um, go down a particular avenue again this can make things quite quite complicated there's some other things that make these, these situations complicated i suppose it's where you've got where the interventions are uncertain and so this could apply to treating 
maybe a, a patient who's pregnant or a young person and potentially a medication could help them, but there haven't been specific trials or studies or safety data you know, that would apply to their particular situation. The drugs would have to be used off license. Mm, that's yeah. a really good example, actually, Julian, because uh, we often just take it for granted that there is evidence and quite often there isn't, is there? Yeah. Absolutely. So then it's, yeah, that just adds a, another layer of complexity that needs needs exploring. And then, and then I guess the really common one is where, you know, the situation is really complex. There's a lots of things going on in, in the with the patient, there may be lots of interaction of different factors that can, can't be predicted, multiple comorbidities, polypharmacy, lots of medications, unstable illness, frailty. I could, I could go on. And a, an example of that, which I quite often see, is if you've got a patient with significant kidney disease and heart failure, the treatment recommended for one may then have a, a detrimental effect on the other. And so that's, again, I suppose that that example could fit into other boxes as well mm. uh, but yeah there's lots of reasons why an explanation and sharing decision making can be quite complex absolutely and I, I think from what you're saying it sounds like many situations in the care of the elderly would bring up dilemmas like this particularly as people are living longer with complex comorbidities and there's a lot of situations relating to things like hospitalization that were highlighted during the covid epidemic and i think these are really complex areas so when we talk about respecting patients' preferences, I think most clinicians think we do this already, but I know that some researchers talk about something which they call the silent missed diagnosis. And what do they mean by that then? Yes, I suppose um, decisions, often we, when we're clinicians, we, we, we do sort of think we're thinking about the preferences, but we do think a lot about the effectiveness of, of the decision and we often focus on that. But it is important we have to think about patients' preferences when, when we're making these plans, because plans have, especially when plans have an inherent risks and benefits. And as we've just been saying, decisions could be really complicated and, and preferences often have to include trade-offs between the different possibilities. So, for example, one patient may choose to trade off a faster recovery time from injury against taking unpaid time off work to do some intensive physiotherapy. Another individual may prefer to trade off a stable income against slightly more pain and a longer recovery time for the same injury. And that's, you know, it's, you know that's, that would be the patient choice and, and, and potentially need exploring. I think it's a really interesting point that you make that um, in complicated situations and perhaps sometimes not even that complicated situations, there are trade-offs, there are mm-hmm. there are things that benefit, and but they may have some harms or, or, or different kind of downsides. And patients might value those trade-offs very differently from clinicians. We tend to be very keen on effectiveness and getting somebody better quickly, whereas somebody else, as you say, might, might really favour having a stable income for all kinds of reasons that apply to them. And, and we won't know about that until we ask and discuss it so it it does actually sound as though if we recognize that patients have preferences and we discuss those effects that could be enough to create a way forward sometimes Um, but if we are going to be talking about shared decision making how how do we know if we have made a good shared decision Julian would you like to comment about that I suppose one way to do that is to just think about a, a definition of good shared decision making from some of the the work that's been done about effective consultations. So one example would be the quality of a clinical decision or its patient-centeredness is the extent to which it reflects the considered needs, values, and expressed preferences of a well-informed patient. So the key point is, is that it's not the clinician's values, needs, or preferences that take priority. 
but the decision still has to be shared and, and not simply passed over to the patient. Well, that's an interesting point. Um, I, I get what you mean about um, taking people's preferences into account, but what do you mean by saying that the decision is not simply passed to the patients? Surely it should always be up to the patient to decide what they actually want to do. Yeah, that, that's 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 true in many ways, but I suppose if there were one way to think about that is um, is to look at there are different styles of interaction around decision making that have been described again in, in other literature. So I could talk about those. So one example is clinician knows best. So that's when the clinician takes a paternalistic position and makes decisions about the best care. And that tends to get a bad press and people think that's a bad way. But actually, in certain situations, that that might be the most appropriate. So if you're in a life-threatening situation and action's really needed, then that might actually be the, the most appropriate situation you know, a, a approach at that time. Mm. Another approach would be the informant clinician. So the informant clinician promotes informed choice. The clinician avoids instructions and presents patients with lots of information, which helps the patients themselves make an informed choice. And I'm, I work as a trainer, and I see this a lot in the, the trainees that I work with, that the, the concept of providing lots of choice for patients comes in. But I think often you see the patients respond that it can result in some people feeling that they've been abandoned or they, they've just got all these choices to make and it's a really complex problem and they don't know really what to do. They don't feel prepared to make that, that choice. So it's a, it's sharing information, but sometimes it feels like it's been dumped on the patient and, and they don't really know what to do and feel a bit stranded. Mm, that makes sense, actually, because I, I think um, people do some sometimes say things like, well, you're the doctor, what would you do? Or, or that's why I've come to see you so that you can tell me the right thing. And, and, and people know that things are complicated and it's not that easy sometimes. Is there something else that people can do that clinicians are different stance? Yes, I suppose with, with, with more, another, um, another way to do this is, is term the interpretive uh, clinician. So the interpretive clinician shares information with the patient, but does not leave the patient to make their choice in isolation. So they'll they'll guide the decision using expert knowledge, but incorporating the patient's own values and, and priorities. So I suppose these are important differences from just a simple informed choice approach. And that's you could call that more as a shared decision making approach. And there are lots more, there's lots more information about shared decision making which requires a specific set of skills. And these are explored in this chapter in greater detail. Thank you. Yeah, that, that's really interesting that, um, that, that the clinician's got expert knowledge, but the patient does know about themselves and their own values. I've also heard people talk about something even beyond that, which is called um, by some people a deliberative clinician. And that's somebody who understands the patient's situation and perhaps helps the patient to achieve or enact their own values, the things that are possible in the clinical situation. And I'm thinking of an example here of somebody who's perhaps reaching the end of life and an older person uh, who's realizing that the situation they're in is now palliative, there's no curative treatment. And perhaps they accept that but maybe their family are saying look we should sell the house and get some private treatment or we should sell the house and take you to america because i've read about some experimental new treatment there and in that situation the deliberative clinician might say to the person in question well, what's most important to you 
what are the things that have always guided your life? And it's quite possible that somebody in that situation would say, well, family is very important to me and the stability of my family is very important to me. Quite honestly, I'm reaching the end of my life. I'm okay with that. The last thing I want is for them to sell their houses and kind of mess up their family lives on the off chance that I might live a few more weeks. I I don't want to do that. So there's a way in which the deliberative clinician can actually think about the patient really in that much more holistic way. So there are some, you mentioned the skill set involved in shared decision making, and I was going to summarise some of the key skills that, that are involved. I think the first thing is the clinician must really know clearly what the decision is that must be made and clarify how much the patient wants to be involved, because patients do differ in this and they differ in how much involvement they want to have. The clinician needs all those information gathering skills as well to establish the patient's own priorities and preferences and to explain that information in a suitable way that the patient can understand. And then I was thinking about talking about three stages to the decision making. Um, and I'm going to call these, which is common in the literature as well, these are team talk, option talk, and decision talk. And in team talk, This is some conversation which establishes that there's going to be a joint decision making and really starts to think about what matters to the patient themselves, what's really important to them. Option talk considers what the possibilities are, what the options are. Uh, And as Julian said before, sometimes options may seem quite attractive, but they may have significant downsides or significant potential harms. Decision talk is what leads to a decision, um, which is then recorded in the notes with the rationale and the discussion. And it can be really helpful to communicate these kinds of discussions and the decisions made to patients or to their families in a confirming letter. Now, it's important that a positive decision is reached. You can't endlessly defer important decisions because, in effect, that's a decision to do nothing, which may be the most inappropriate decision of all. So, Julian, I'm wondering if you could say something more about discussing the options, which I didn't go into in any detail. How can clinicians do that in a way that remains empowering for patients and doesn't just kind of dump them with the responsibility for a difficult decision? Yeah, so I suppose this may just um, start simply by asking patients what they feel, what they understand when, you know, when some options have been shared and and then take it further and ask what questions they, they have. And it may be then that the patient seems to totally understand and, and be, feels able to make a choice. But often this is not the case, especially when we're talking about the complex situations that can arise. So I suppose the questions or the, the feelings that come out can then guide the clinician to the areas of uncertainty or what seems difficult. And that can help the, you know, tease those areas out. And, and, and the clinician can then really support and help support those areas. So, it, it may be that there needs to be a bit more of an explicit discussion. So you just gave a, the example of uh, a, a patient's relative who said, well, let's sell the house and we'll take you to America and get the best treatment. But, you know, potentially that needs exploring, you know, like you've said, uh, uh, in more depth to actually look at the, the benefits of that, but also the potential harms and also maybe the medical realism of, of, of what, the, what the choices are going. Another example might be talking to a patient who has has a serious cancer diagnosis and it may be that choosing fifth-line chemotherapy will offer hope for a longer life, 
but it may be that the patient or the patient's family needs to become aware that this life may be spent mainly in the chemo ward and will limit their time with their family members, grandchildren, or even time spent doing things that they enjoy, like going to the football. So it's it, it's these options that the sort of the doctor's role there can be to help um, you know, fill in missing gaps and support the patient. I think. I think what you're saying is that it's helping the patient to really think about what matters, but also perhaps having a bit of courage on behalf of the clinician to actually say, well, there are downsides to these things and there are potential harms. And I think the word that's sometimes used um, in business is this is called scenario planning, where you kind of say, well, maybe if you go for chemo, what will happen is you will miss all your uh, football team's home matches because, you know, you, you won't be able to go to a crowded place or, or you'll be spending too much time in the ward or uh, or it might be that, well, you know, you, you've talked about wanting to be with your family. You know, if you wanted to be at home, we could plan a scenario where you had palliative care at home. We get the Macmillan team in and so on. So it's almost like painting a picture of the options, not just kind of saying, well, chemo or no chemo, but really painting a picture of what those scenarios might entail and what that might actually be really like and I think one of the roles of the GP in this is sometimes as you mentioned again something about clinical realism and and saying well some people do great with this but a lot of people actually don't and a lot of people really struggle so it it, it sounds like thinking about the trade-offs and so on it sounds like we need to be really well prepared for these shared decision-making discussions thinking about the benefits and harms and about the individual patient that we're aiming to make personalised care for. Um, I'm wondering if you've got any thoughts about how this works out in practice, Julian, because uh, it doesn't sound like it's such an easy process. What what do you think? Yeah, I think it's just being ready because it's not always a comfortable discussion. Um, And, you know, these complicated issues are, are difficult for the patients and, and often very difficult for the clinicians you can uh, sometimes feel a bit out of your depth and I think also when we start off as clinicians we often there isn't often a lot of time left in a consultation to do these parts of, of, of the work which can actually be the most important part and element of the of the consultation in many ways so it's just I suppose that to, to do this it's really important to have up-to-date clinical information get your facts straight and then think about the harms as well of the benefits that could be at play here being willing to open the discussion about possible trade-offs between these benefits and harms but but as I've said it's also creating time and space if you anticipate the discussion's going to be difficult making time to record the decision and the reason for it fully in the notes and there could well be the need to arrange appropriate follow-up time and space because often these decisions can't be made at that very moment as it feels like there's a pressure that the doctor or the or the clinician or the patient need to make a decision there and then and that's, that's often not the case mm-hmm. so having that planned no pressure to make a decision instantly unless it's a, a really emergency situation I think that's a really good point, because I think on the one hand, decisions do have to be made. They can't just kind of be deferred to, well, let's not do anything. At the same time, quite often there's a sort of breaking bad news element in some of these most difficult of of consultations, isn't there? That, That people haven't always appreciated the harms or the implications or what kind of scenarios might come up. And perhaps 
when that has been explained and maybe there's been some attempt to really understand the patient's own perspective, it can be very useful to just say, well, look, go home, discuss that with your family. Um, let's make arrangements to see you next week, perhaps with your daughter or, yeah. or somebody that you want to bring with you. And then we can kind of work out the best way forward for you uh, at thinking about what the things you've told me are important for you, which which obviously will be different between different yeah. patients. I mean, you, me- you mentioned that this is a bit uncomfortable and I-, I think these conversations do get easier with time. You do need to be a bit brave, but I'm wondering what about the benefits? I mean, where this has worked, how, how has it been? for you and for the patient do you think yeah i, I think uh, i suppose that i i wasn't uh, aware of the theory of, of uh, and the little micro skills that you can learn to to try you know things that we've talked about today when i was starting off as a as a gp and i've kind of just sort of muddled along and learned it and found out what worked for me but you know it's really useful to have, have these concepts that we've talked about and and because especially if you if, if you want to practice and improve things you know just breaking things down into you know just practicing doing the team talk section or 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 just practicing the decision um, talk can really help you know if you're struggling with these decisions thank you julian what what you've said so far seems really interesting and I, I, it sounds like there's a bit more to it as well about the preparation and the pressures on these decisions do you want to say something more about that yeah i suppose if you think about it um they, they are really high pressured situations, They're quite often an emotional um, situation for, for patients and families, but, but also for us. And I, I suppose what I've learned over the years is that, you, you know, good preparation's great, but you ultimately don't know what the patient's going to say. Hmm. Uh, and actually, uh, we've talked about if it's a sort of life or death situation, then a decision has to be made. Um, but m- most of most decisions, there is a bit of time for deliberation, but it, it, it may be, I think I used to put a lot of pressure on myself to I, I'd prepare and want to know everything I could about the situation. But then when you delivered some of it to the patient, um, it, it, it wasn't as pertinent as I thought. And maybe they'd, they'd have another idea for an option. And you'd have, so I guess it's allowing that space for, because you really don't know what's going to happen in a consultation until until you've delivered the first bit of information and where it's going to go. I think the risk of over-preparing it as well means that we go down our agendas and we start to take over. So it's... um... Yeah, sorry, uh, I'd sort of yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting point about the sort of balance between being prepared and all, and kind of as it were being fixed in your thoughts about it. And I also think it's really important to have that skill of of being able to understand the patient's preferences, because then, as you say, sometimes they come up with things you haven't expected or that you wouldn't have thought of or they have a different um, idea altogether. And initially, I think some clinicians might see that as a bit of a failure that, Mm. oh, I don't know anything about such and such an option that this person has brought up or I don't know anything about, you know, whether they whether they're allowed to get that certain treatment in the UK or whatever. But actually, if if that's happened, it's a sign of, of skill, isn't it, that you've elicited that person's thoughts their concerns that they've they might have some ideas about things and that's going to help you to personalize the care and share the decision making even if you can't do it at that exact consultation you might have to go away and get some more information or talk to somebody about what's possible for example so i i think that also refers to that thing you were talking about earlier on is 
where you kind of almost build up the skills for doing this bit by bit over time as you get better at it and you get more used to having conversations about difficult subjects with people. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The other thing I was going to say is whether you've had much experience of use of, of people often talk about shared decision making in, in slightly, I would say, more straightforward situations. So, for example, somebody with osteoarthritis has got bad knee pain. You know, should they have a knee replacement? Are they is this the right time for them to have a knee replacement? And there are decision aids, uh, many of which are online now, which can help people to sort of work through that. Uh, and that can be another way of as it were, setting out some of the options, giving somebody the chance to go away and look at a decision aid and then perhaps discuss it with you again on another occasion. Uh, and I wonder whether whether you tried any approaches like that, you know, perhaps giving somebody something to read or look at before making a decision later on. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's um, that kind of approach is so helpful. It, it may be a decision aid or it may be just, um, you know, some information from a, a reputable source that just gives patients more information i mean contraceptive choices hrt choices often that's often a really useful approach to i mean you've got so many choices i think they're particularly helpful where there's so many particular you know different options of, of treatment pausing for a bit so, uh, you know uh, only if it's appropriate for the patient but give them the materials that can support them to to learn more and then come back again and if, again, I think we alluded to it earlier on, but if, you, if you're parking a decision, if you're saying you know, we're, we're going to go away and do this, it's really important to have a timetabled follow-up. So, again, the patient doesn't feel dumped with this, you know, with reams of information and, and knows that they can come back and and it's almost, you've set the scene that you can come back and ask me questions and then we can, you know, work out what, where we're going from here. I think that's a really important point about scheduling the follow-up and scheduling as it were the time when the decision is going to be made because I've certainly talked to patients who've been in situations where they've said something like well I got given this whole load pile of leaflets and I just looked at it and I thought I don't know where to start so I never went back or something like that and I think it's it's really important to think about how we personalize that and how we schedule the follow-up and the decision um, and to remember that some decisions which might seem relatively straightforward for us, like, you know, there's a range of contraceptive choices, for example, mm. uh, and, and you choose one that seems to suit you. But actually, for some people, that, that might be quite a nuanced decision that might take into account quite a different set of values about who mm -hmm. controls the contraception, Absolutely. for example, or whether they like taking tablets. Go on. No, I was just going to say, it's, it's really simple, very simple, just... It, it's the same with all all things if you explain why you're doing something and then there's there's you know you it helps people understand why you're giving them information very often you say read this leaflet and the patient doesn't necessarily know exactly what they're supposed to do so it's it's making that you know explicit what what the you know what what reading the leaflet is going to achieve and then what's going to happen next yes yeah. Yes, I think that's right. And thinking about personalising the care, it can be really useful if you've if you've got a, a a leaflet to really highlight the bits that apply to the patient in front of you. Mm -hmm. Because some things apply more to some people than others, and yeah. that can be a way for people to start to filter through the information they want. And of course, there are online resources to help with that as well. Uh, and there will be a chapter about using all these resources from the computer in the consultation in in the module as well. I think we've had a very wide-ranging discussion. Thank you, Julian. I think this higher-order skill set builds on the core consultation skills 
that we already have in place, especially information gathering skills, building the relationship uh, and the skills for explanation and planning personalised care. There's a lot more detail about these basic skills in the materials that, that are in those modules. And that within this specific chapter on shared decision making, there are more details about these skills and the background to them. When we can do these difficult conversations, it's actually very rewarding, I think. Uh, patients are often extremely grateful when difficult matters are openly discussed and brought up. And it can often mean that things that they're a bit nervous to talk about can come into the open. And, and while that can be a bit uncomfortable, if we as clinicians can tolerate that, painful facing of difficult decisions. I think it's a really important way to support and help patients. This podcast was brought to you by NHS Professional Educators, making training available to all.